2: Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. This is Laura. This is episode 92. Today we're interviewing Audrey Monkey. I say that wrong in our actual segment, but uh, she forgives me, so it's all good. Um, Audrey is a longtime director of a camp, and she has a new book out called Happy Campers, which is all about secrets that parents can use uh, to bring some of the magic of camp back into our everyday lives and hopefully have happier families, kids who feel more like they belong and are having a wonderful time at life and all the other great things that happen at camp. So we thought we'd open this episode by talking about our own camp experiences and you know what we're doing for our kids too. Sarah, were you a camper? Did you, did you do much camp when you were a kid?
3: I was, but I was a day camper. Okay. Yeah, I, I attended the same it was at a local private school uh, outside of Philadelphia, not one that I attended. I went to public school, but this school had a camp and it was very well run. And I think from the ages of maybe eight, seven or eight to 12. Well, I was a camper there. And then I went straight into the track where you become like a CIT and then an assistant counselor. And I ended up working there almost every summer until I was old enough to go to, I think we both are governor's school. Well, you have a different system in your state, but to a state program that was free. Um, my parents were willing to pay for day camp, but they were not particularly eager to shell out for expensive overnight programs or those pre-college programs, which I know you're going to talk about. I remember asking to go to one at like Johns Hopkins because you took your SATs. And if you get a score, you could get in. And I'm like, I got in. And they saw the price tag and they're saying, yeah, no, you're working. <laughs> so um, no, and that's okay. It all turned out very well. And I think they were probably saving for college, which they funded in full. So there you go. Thank you, parents. Um, but no, I did not go to overnight camp. I did go to a one week of cheerleading camp every year because that was required as being on the squad. It was like training and it was, it was held on a campus of an overnight camp. So I've been in that environment, but it was very different.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I started going to, um, well, we lived in North Carolina for the first part of my childhood and I started going to a camp. um, I think it's called Presbyterian point or Presbyterians. uh, And it was held at Car Lake um, which is on the border between North Carolina and Virginia. And they had sort of outdoorsy camps. I went, um, I think the summer after third grade was the first time I went and I went for like three nights. It was a short camp for, for nine year olds. And, uh, I think the first one was pretty challenging, but I definitely liked it by the end. And then after that, it was fine. I went a couple more years. Um, and one summer we did, uh, sailing. So I actually learned how to sail and I, I thought it was all kinds of fun to, uh, you know, we packed our overnight bags, we sailed across the lake to I don't know if it was an island or wherever that we camped overnight and sailed back, which was really fun. Although, you know, when you're 12 or so 11, you don't necessarily have the most responsibility for things like sunscreen. And I believe I may have gotten the worst sun, sun part of my life on that uh, overnight sailing experience. And then I went to, uh, you were talking about the academic camps, the summer, we moved to Indiana, and the summer after seventh, eighth, and ninth grades, I went to the Center for Talent Development at Northwestern University, which was a three-week program, and you'd take a class that was supposed to be the equivalent of a high school level class, and I did geometry one summer, I did computer programming another summer, and another summer I did a world literature, I've read a lot of books and wrote papers about stuff. And I loved it. Oh, gosh, we, you know, people joke about it being nerd camp. And if, if so, it was all for nerds like me, because it was it was an amazing experience to, you know, just, you're in a normal middle school. Like, if you're in any way different, which we all are in middle school, but we're all aware of our own differences, uh, you, beca- you get a certain identity. And my identity happened to be like, the, the math nerd, like the smart girl whatever. And, and then you go to camp and everyone's like you. And it's like, oh, there's other parts of my personality. Isn't this wonderful? <laughs> so I really enjoyed it and, and was you know challenged in all kinds of great ways by the classes that I just wasn't being challenged in my middle school um, back in Indiana. So it was, it was a really great experience. My kids are, um, my eldest is, is really the one who'd be in the overnight camp stratosphere of age at the moment he's just he's not into it. I I've, I've got him to go to a like a lock in for the youth group for middle school at church and he was willing to do one night but he's just not had any interest in doing overnight camp in the summer and I keep nudging it and giving him brochures. I'm I'm not the reluctant parent. What about your second child though cuz actually I,
3: he's hitting the realm where some of his friends may be attending.
2: Yeah, I think that may happen soon. So far he's been doing a um a, a camp, like a programming camp that, that is around here. And he's doing three weeks of that this summer. And it's, I think a really well-run one. So, but maybe next summer he'll want to do something that's, that's overnight. Cause I think he would really like it.
3: Isn't it kind of sad for us that being a nerd is cool now?
2: Yeah. So maybe, I don't I'm know. We were, we story. were just early, Sarah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So what are you guys doing?
3: Uh, well, my kids are definitely not Quite old, And I guess there are some seven-year-olds who go to overnight camp. Um, my seven-year-old is not of that ilk. <laughs> um, so we are doing the local JCC day camp, which is a very popular option. They have swimming every day and a number of field trips. And uh, this will be a new camp for them because we did move, so different kids. But I think they'll have some of their classmates there. Uh, Genevieve is too young, so she will be home.
2: Yeah. That's true. Yeah, you're not packing Genevieve off to camp. <laughs> I guess she's got to be weaned yet for that to happen, right? <laughs> oh, let's not get into that. Okay, <laughs> no, let's just go straight into uh, our, our interview with Audrey. Well, Sarah and I are happy to welcome Audrey Monk to the podcast today. Uh, Audrey is a camp director, a longtime camp director, and also the author of the new book, Happy Campers Nine Summer Camp Secrets for Raising Kids Who Become Thriving Adults. So, Audrey, why don't you introduce yourself for us?
4: Well, thank you so much for having me on. I am such a fan of Best of Both Worlds, so it's really fun to be here. Um, My name is Audrey, and actually my last name is pronounced monkey, which is crazy. I know. No, that's okay. It's just I, I... Often when I make reservations, say monk, because it's just easier because I don't have <laughs> a um, It's like your
2: Starbucks name,
4: right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I, um, as you said, I'm a, I'm a summer camp director. I've been working at camp for 34 years now. Uh, I didn't realize it was not something that I thought I would do when I was young, but I just fell into this amazing career. Um, I actually own and direct a summer camp. And then um, I'm also the mother of five kids, and a lot of them are already adults now. So my kids right now range in age from 15 to 25. And I've been married for 26 years. And my husband and I actually direct the camp together. And he does sort of all the business and operation side. And I do more of the kind of people and marketing and kind of training of staff side of things.
2: That's awesome. And how did you become a camp director? Because I don't know if it's I mean, this is the kind of job that people might grow up thinking they wanted to do. um, But <laughs> Maybe you had a different background.
4: Oh, yeah. No, I would never have thought of it as a career. I didn't even know it existed you know, as a kid. Um, really, it was, um, I think it's just one of those things that was kind of meant to be. I, I attended the camp that I now own just one time when I was a kid. And when I was in college, I knew I wanted to do something working with kids. I thought I probably wanted to be a teacher. And so my sophomore year, I went to the career center to look up different camps because I thought it would be great to get some experience working with kids while I was in college before becoming a teacher or whatever else I was going to do. And this is in 1986. So, so this was pre-internet, pre-computers. So I went to the career center and there were these big binders with brochures from all the different camps. And I was flipping through. And I got to my camp, Gold Arrow Camp, and I was—I had this like, oh my gosh! I remember going to this camp; it was so much fun. I loved this camp. So I applied for a job, and um, the camp is on a lake, and so they need a lot of boat drivers. And my background—I grew up in a in a family where we did a lot of boating. My dad always loved like water skiing and boats, and um, I had a little Boston Whaler that I used to. I learned how to drive when I was young. And so anyway, I was, it was a natural, I I got a job as a water skiing instructor in 1986. And when I arrived at the camp, it was the very first summer that the founder of the camp wasn't there because he had passed away in the December, December of 1985. So his wife was still running the camp and um, it was just, so I, I got there and I mean, This is a big part of why I wrote the book. The feeling there of connection and belonging was like nothing I had ever experienced before. So I had been, you know, in a great high school. I was at college at the time at Stanford. I come from a really nice family. But this place and the feeling that I got that first summer in 1986 was like nothing I've ever. It was just so great. I just loved the people. I loved the focus and what we spent our time doing. It was just so different than the kind of overachieving, overdoing everything culture that was my life in the 80s when I, you know, I went to a college preparatory high school and then I went to Stanford and I was like, go, 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 do all these things. And I got to camp and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is like so much better.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, is that why kids like camp? Is it that sense of belonging and being good just for who you are and that sense of friendship? I mean, what is it kids like about camp?
4: Um, There are a lot of things, but you, that's exactly it. I think it's, um, it's a break from all the pressure that they feel in their regular life. I think everyone's sort of feeling this like amped up kind of sense of overwhelm right now, parents and kids and kind of everybody. We're all sort of running around and it, like that movie, The Race to Nowhere. I feel a little bit like that, like everyone's kind of spinning and, and the internet, while it's been great to have the convenience of email, I think it really shifted for people just this feeling like you're always on and there's always things to do. And oh my gosh, you're always behind kind of. And I think our kids have gotten that from us, too, because they're growing up in the same time. So what I hear from kids, and I actually did research on this, and the American Camp Association has also done research on it, is that they do feel a greater sense of well-being, more happiness when they're at camp, and as a result of being at camp.
3: Well, we're definitely skipping ahead um, in my questions that I had for you, but you know, one uh, sort of... To me, parents have, I'm a physician and I take care of a lot of kids. And the parents will say, I'm sending them to camp specifically to untether them from their device. (laughs) So are you, is that, can does that continue to be a major benefit of camp that maybe wasn't even anticipated 20 years ago? And I'm hoping that you're going to tell me that camps are not starting to trend towards allowing electronics, because I do think that seems like one of the most beautiful, healthy things uh, about the experience for kids today.
4: Yes. I think one of the reasons, I mean, camp has always been a great experience for kids, but now it's becoming, I think, even more vital, um, getting them outdoors and yes, getting them unplugged. And I will say that my camp and most camps Do not allow devices and it really is truly an unplugged time. But it does vary and it's something that parents really do need to ask about. Uh, For example, there are, you know, sports camps that go on for a week where kids have, you know, use their devices during off times. I think it's a really critical thing at camp to not have the devices or any kind of screens because it's the opportunity then for the kids to get the connections and create the community. And if you have your phone and you're in a new place, the tendency for adults and kids is to default to looking at their phone because you're, you know, you're nervous in a new social situation. So it's really important to force all of us, adults and kids to be without our screens, just so that we do focus on our face-to-face interactions. So yes, I am a huge proponent. I've written a lot about being unplugged, and that is one of the reasons I think kids do feel better while they're at camp. A lot of them will tell me, even teenagers, "Oh, it's so nice to just know that you know I don't have to check, I don't have to post anything or check things." Um, they'll they'll articulate this to us at camp how great it feels to be off their devices. But that's hard to translate to home because at home, their friends are all on the devices. So at camp, they don't worry about it because everyone they're with is also unplugged. So it doesn't translate to home just to say, oh, well, I feel so great at camping unplugged. I can do that at home. You really can't because your friends are all plugged in at home. Well, and maybe also-
3: that's okay. But the sort of cleanse of sorts is, is still helpful in the long run, I would think.
1: Oh, yes,
4: definitely. And I think it it shifts their perspective about it. I think after a lot of them will tell me that after camp, they change their habits.
2: Well, Audrey, of course, one of the reasons we can't have the same tech uh, restrictions at home is that they have to use their tech to get in touch with their friends. And one of the fun things of camp, of course, is your friends are right there. I mean, they're in your bunk with you there. I mean, that that does make it sort of easier. And I, I wonder if that that tight sense of community is, is also part of the appeal too.
4: Oh, definitely. I think that kids rarely have the opportunity anymore to just hang out with friends and just be with them for an extended period of time without any end goal. So they have friends that they go to soccer practice with or, you know, it's just now it seems so complicated to get play dates, whereas we used to just play more. I think camp goes back to kind of more the old days where you're just together and you're just playing and, you know, they're playing cards and they're just having fun together and just being together so much more. So I think that's why they really feel like they make better friends at camp because of that. It's so intense, even though it's just a week or two, but they're together the whole time.
2: So what can we do as parents to, to have some of this this camp magic in, in our own lives, to have um, happy campers in our, our own homes? What are some practical things we can do?
4: Well, I really think I, I came to the conclusion after working at camp for about 10 years that you really can just use a lot of the same camp practices at home to get some of the same results. And that's sort of why I ended up writing the whole book, was just that the little activities and regular habits that we do at camp can easily be incorporated at home by parents. Give us some examples. So one thing that is a practice at most camps is some kind of daily sharing. So it might be, you know, that you're, it's whether it's at a meal or a circle time or a campfire where you go around and everyone has the opportunity to share something. So it might be that, You share the same thing every day, like your high of the day and your low of the day, or it could be a question that everybody answers. It's just, there's usually some kind of daily sharing that gives everybody in the group an opportunity to talk. So whether it's the quiet one or the loud one, everybody has a chance to share. And this is a really important practice because in any group, and this would be the same at a work group or your family, there are people who tend to talk more. And dominate conversations. And that can happen with kids as well. And so you might end up with some kids who are not really as included in a conversation because they haven't been asked to share. So when you have the leader and at camp, it's the counselor at home it's one of the parents saying, okay, we're all going to share this. And then everybody has a chance to share. Not only are is everyone feeling that sense of, oh, people are listening to me and want to hear my story. But you're also helping the kids who tend to not be good listeners learn to listen to other people. (laughs) So you're also building an important social skill. So it's like a two, it has a, a dual purpose that it's both helping the kid who's talking and it's helping the kids who are learning to listen.
2: Yeah, that's really cool. And one of the things you talk about in the book is is as a parent thinking of yourself almost as kind of um, the social skills coach uh, for, for your child, which I'm, I'm sure is not the sort of coach that many of us think of ourselves as, as being. Um, many of us working ourselves on our social skills, not necessarily geniuses in that regard. <laughs> so uh, what does it mean practically to help coach your children on social skills and, and How does this relate to what happens at camp as well? Well, I
4: love this concept because I feel like so in other places like in sports or school, everyone's focused on usually like academic performance or athletic performance. And no one's really thinking of social skills as being like the top priority. And even parents generally don't feel that way. Like they don't start the day thinking, okay, I need to really make sure that today my child gets some opportunities for social skills development. But at camp, that is a hundred percent what we're about. We're not thinking about academics. We're not thinking about, you know, the sports stuff, um, at least at traditional programs. And so Our whole focus, what we're talking about with our counselors before camp starts is how are we going to build the connections? How are we going to help kids learn to be better friends? You know, and so that's our focus. And I love that that's what we get to research and study and practice at camp. And I've really figured that after being at camp for so long, I mean, kids are with us for a couple of weeks, but they're with you all year. And so this kind of focus on relational skills needs to be all the time, not just when they're at camp. And, um, you know, it's, you know, how schools go through these phases where they were really focused on character development, character counts. Well, now the big buzzwords is SEL, social emotional learning, because they've realized that kids aren't going to learn at school if they don't feel that they belong, if they don't feel like they can talk to the person next to them and communicate with their teacher. And of course, we all know this intuitively that your relationship skills are going to be the most important skills in any job, whether you're a doctor or anything, you need to be able to communicate and relate to other people. And I think parents could spend more time focusing on that. Because I think if you spend your whole day worrying about like helping them with their math, for example, you could spend an hour helping them with your their math, or you could have a, um, a family dinner together, where everyone's and asking each other different questions and that family dinner together could end up being more valuable in the long term.
3: I love that. So, as you mentioned, many many kids love camp. Do you have tips for kids who might not love camp? Do you see that? Do you see that change? Does it relate to age? Talk about our reluctant campers.
4: Oh gosh, it's my they're my favorites. <laughs> Honestly, the reluctant campers are the ones who usually benefit the most from the experience, even if it's a bit of a challenge or a lot of a challenge. So I'm not saying that every kid is great for every camp, but I do believe there's a match for every child. There's a camp program that could be great for every kid. So, you know. It's, and I, and I am a huge proponent of it. And I actually feel like kids who are most hesitant about going to camp are often the ones who might benefit the most. So a couple of things I I've done a whole podcast on this topic and written about it a lot. One thing is as a parent, you first have to decide what your philosophy is going to be on the topic of your child being away from you, because I think there is always this ambivalence for parents that you love your kids so much, your life is very focused on them and revolves around them. And so when they start getting to an age where they can go off and do things without you, there's a bit of a, that's a, that's kind of a hard thing to deal with for some parents. So I think there's two parts of this. There's the reluctant camper and then there's also the reluctant parent Um, I've had, I've had parents standing next to their 14 year old say to me, he's just not ready for camp yet. Wow. (laughs) And so, and that's the, that's where we have to really think about, is it really your child who's not ready or are you not ready? And are you communicating to your child, you know, whether you're doing it consciously or not, that they're not ready? Because that's a big thing for parents. Our kids, I don't know, you know, about mirror neurons, they get so much just from looking at our facial expression. You know, if someone's talking about camp and you're like, oh, my gosh, you know, your facial expression is we would never do that. Your kid looks at you and thinks, oh, I guess I better not do that.
2: But, but what do you? must do-
3: be a scary thing.
2: Yeah, yeah, what do you do when you, when, you know, let's say we've got a kid who shows up and he or she is, is really homesick, really having a tough, you know, adjustment to, to camp. How, how do you um, work with those, those campers and help them have a good experience?
4: It's, it's really a great, great experience. First of all, it's a lot of empathy and validating their feelings and saying, you know, it, this is really hard this is, this is, you're doing, you know, this is a really difficult thing you're doing. It's really challenging for you. Um, we talk a lot about where are you feeling it? You know, a lot of kids get stomach aches. They get actually, you know, symptoms (laughs) from feeling homesick. We talk about what they love about home and how great it is that they have such a nice family and home that they would miss it. We talk about how, everybody misses home, even adults. When you're on a trip, there are things you miss about home. You look forward to getting back to your own bed and your own routine. And, and then we also just talk about different, we help them strategize different coping mechanisms for dealing with the difficult emotions that they're, they're facing. And kids are really smart. We actually do a lot of prep work too ahead of time. So especially with parents who anticipate that their child will have some difficulties with the separation. Talking to them a lot ahead of time and normalizing those feelings because part of the problem for kids is if they feel like they're having this really terrible feeling and it's really uncomfortable and they're not used to being uncomfortable, they think it's so bad that they just must get out of it immediately. But if the parents have communicated ahead of time that it's normal to sometimes feel that way and it's okay and they're confident that they'll be able to work through those feelings, that's huge for kids. Even the most homesick kids, if they get the message from their parents that their parents are sad that they're feeling so sad but are really confident that they can work through those feelings, that's a great thing. And that's, we always tell parents, never do a pickup deal. You know, never say, I'll come pick you up early. But know that at camp, the camp is very aware of kids and what's going on. And if the feelings are so extreme and they go on for too long, the par- the director will work with the parents and figure out something. There are occasionally cases where a shortened stay is good. If you can end it on a really positive note, like you did great, but rarely does that end up being best for the child. Honestly, when they overcome Those feelings, they are on top of the world. I have so many kids. I mean, 34 years of camp. I have You wouldn't believe some of the things kids have said to me about how, I mean, I can't do this. I'm not a camp person. I, you know, this is terrible. I'm uncomfortable. And then that one of them is a five-year camper this year. One of these kids who I had these conversations with when she was a first-year camper and her parents knew she was an anxious kid and everything new is always hard for her. But it's been the most terrific experience. So I, I would I would encourage parents who have a reluctant camper to, first of all, find a program that is good at helping kids through that and really be honest with them ahead of time. Talk to them and also prep your child for the experience and let them know that even though, you know, the camp video looks really fun, there's going to be some hard times too. And that's okay. You're proud of them. You know, you they can do it.
2: So what you said, you know, this person is a, a five-year camper now. When is a good age for kids to start going to camp? And is there sort of a, you scale it up, like try a, a two-night kind of thing and then try a, a seven-night kind of, you know, I'm, I'm curious if there is a, a best practice for, for age appropriateness for all this.
3: And if you can include on the back end, when does attending camp sometimes blend into possibly like working in camp? Does that sometimes happen? So yeah, yeah. give us a spectrum.
4: Okay, well- You know, that seems like such a simple question, like I should just have an age. So when I have to answer it really quickly, I just say that for an overnight camp around nine or 10 is awesome. Um, But many kids start younger, especially younger siblings of kids. So what I always tell parents is if they have a younger child, like anywhere from six to eight, if the child is an independent kind of kid, often a younger sibling, who's been at camp, toured camp with the family, and is saying, I want to go, they'll be fine. Um, <laughs> if your child is 11, 12, 13, and they're saying, oh, you know, I don't want to go. I don't want to do this. That's the time that's getting kind of critical because if they're not going to do camp, do you have some other kind of independent experience that they're going to do? So I'm, So it doesn't have to be camp necessarily but i really believe we're we're not setting our kids up for success as adults if we don't give them some opportunities when they're kids for short times away from parents and the opportunity to develop their own self, like they they can solve their own problems. They can make some decisions, even if it's as simple as what they're gonna choose for lunch, these opportunities to do something without their parents right nearby helping are really important for younger kids. I think we sometimes think that our child's just gonna magically, they're gonna graduate from high school, we're gonna send them off to college, and there's gonna be just this switch that all of a sudden they're this self-reliant, independent person, and that's not what's happening. A lot of kids are struggling at 18, 19, 20 because they haven't built up those skills that they need to be okay away from parents. So camp to me is just this really short, easy way to start developing those skills younger so that by the time you get to these bigger life adventures like college or maybe studying abroad or other things like that, they feel more prepared. They might still struggle in some areas, but they at least have built up this confidence. Well, I've been to camp. I've done this. You know, I can do this, too.
2: Yeah. And a lot of your employees are on the young side, right? I mean, that's part of you know, managing a camp. So could you talk a little bit about them? And in particular, I bet we have some listeners who are managing younger workers, um, many people in, in some of their first jobs. Uh, what have you learned over the years for, for making that a good managerial experience and a good first job experience for people, too?
4: Oh, the counselors are great. I think we automatically get just fantastic people who want to work at camp because when you think about it, they're 19, 20, 21, 22-year-old college students who have chosen after being at college all year (laughs) to come work at camp during the summer. So just that alone is a good indication that both they and their parents are comfortable with their own kind of doing their own adventures, doing their own thing. I think a lot of parents would say, oh, I want you home for the summer. You've been away at college. You know, a lot of parents would think that. But a lot of our counselors were campers themselves. And so the parents recognize the benefits of the experience and are okay with them being gone because counselors work the whole summer. It's like a 10 or 12-week commitment. We actually don't like it to be their first job it can be for some, but for most people, it's not. Um, We really encourage kids to have other kind of part-time jobs during college, during their summers, before they work at camp, because it is a very intense job. As you can imagine, it's a lot like parenting, very little time off, very intense. um, It's an intense load physically and emotionally taking care of kids 24 hours a day. And so it's It seems kind of like, I think people sort of romanticize it like, oh, a camp counselor, how fun. It is fun. It has a lot of very rewarding parts, but it's also extremely hard. Managing a large group of kids, uh, keeping your, maintaining your emotional regulation, not getting upset by annoying behaviors. They have to learn how to clean up, throw up and deal with like parenting type issues. Um, It's a great experience. They learn so much, but it's also hard.
2: Yeah, I can imagine that would be, but, but rewarding same, same way and, and learn a lot of job skills for the rest of your life. Um, so we, we always end our, our interviews with uh, doing a love of the week. So Sarah and I can go first uh, because that gives people a minute to, <laughs> to think of something. So, so Sarah, what, what do you have for us this week?
3: I now regret not choosing like a camp related love <laughs> of the week. That's <laughs> <laughs> nah, okay. I, this is actually the first podcast we're recording on my new laptop, and I'm kind of in love with it because it functions beautifully, and it's cute, and has this useless but very pretty it up bar in front. It's the new MacBook Pro, and yeah, it's definitely my love of the week.
2: Yeah, I am. Um- I've been uh, enjoying my MacBook Pro too, though I think I should uh, say something camp related. For um, <laughs> we, <laughs> I, I like my my uh, camp spreadsheet that I come up with every summer. Yes, that uh, has the kids' names on the top and the weeks of the summer down the left, and this is how I organize the summer. Of like, okay, well, who's got? enough stuff for the summer or has too much stuff for the summer and make sure that our vacation weeks and other things is going in it, it's just very quick can see the whole thing and you know make strategic choices like you know not put three kids in three camps with the same drop off time but they're far from each other uh during the same week that's that's kind of a rookie mistake i'm kind of trying to get away from away from that one all right so audrey how about you
4: Oh, I've been anticipating this because okay. I listen yes. to your podcast every week. So um, I was debating between two. So I guess I'll share. Um, one is, I can I do two? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So one is, I don't know if you guys do Goodreads, mm-hmm. but I love Goodreads. And in terms of if I'm going to spend time on a social media thing, I feel like Goodreads is a really fun one. I love seeing what my friends are reading and then hear, seeing their comments about books and stuff. So I, I like Goodreads. And then my other one, and this is just total plug for you, Laura, the before breakfast podcast. I love podcasts so much, but sometimes, you know, you don't have a lot of time and I have been just pushing play on yours just as I'm getting ready in the morning. And I love that feeling of like, I listened to a whole podcast that was just like five or 10 minutes. So I really like, and I'm liking that format. There's some other ones that I'm finding. I like the short form podcast. So i I love podcasts, but now I'm kind of discovering that there's some other ways to listen that don't require like 45 minutes. Yeah.
2: Well, thank you. I, I, I didn't ask her to say that, but I, I'm glad we allowed for two. Yay. <laughs> was gonna, gonna be there. Well, Ajay, thanks so much for coming on and, and remind our listeners about your book and uh, where they can find it.
4: Um, everything about my book is available at happycampersbook.com, which is a page on my website. And it's available kind of most most book retailers, and there's a lot of information. I'm gonna be doing a summer read-along with parents so each week in July and August I'm going to be talking about one of the secrets like on a video and having discussion around it and sharing different activities and ideas so I'm just going to kind of it's going to be fun to not just have this book out in the world but to keep reminding people and using it and also building more activities I've I have worked with a lot of other camp directors so I'm I keep building to the activities and ideas that we do at camp that people can bring home so I'm excited to just keep sharing this.
2: That's wonderful. Very cool. Yeah. So the book is called Happy Campers. And, you know, we're, we're all in favor of life being like summer camp. So thanks so much for coming on, Audrey. It's
4: been great. Thank you so much for having me.
2: So our question this week comes from a physician. We, of course, always like our questions from physicians, Sarah especially. Uh, this lady writes in that I'm a physician mom of a three-year-old and a one-year-old and work in a busy academic medical center, currently employed full-time. As part of her job responsibility, she's required to be on call every third night and work every third weekend, which, as she says, has become increasingly exhausting over the past few years, as you know, she has a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and led to significant burnout. There's not great culture around well-being at my institution. As per the advice of Laura's books, I have tracked my time for four weeks and found that on average, I am on call 81 hours per week but of these 81 hours, I'm only performing work tasks 45 hours per week, which is much less than I originally thought. However, I feel that the call in and of itself is killing me due to a lack of sleep and no flexibility during these times. I'm desperate for a change and feel I am nearing a breaking point of sorts. I have another job offer, which is about 31 hours a week and no night call um, working one weekend day shift per month trade-off I would be 0.8 full-time equivalent so the pay is significantly less um, she's always so worried about the long-term consequences of leaving her institution and whether she'd be giving up her academic rank in a way that she would never be able to come back. She says that, you know, I'm not also not sure if my current job is really the entire problem. So I fear making this big change and still feeling like a failure as a mom, wife and doctor while making significant less money and with less career options. So she was, would appreciate our feedback on, on what we think she should do. So, so Sarah, you want to dive in or you want me to, me to start?
3: Uh, well, I can dive in. Why don't you dive in? <laughs> I, I loved this question just cause it made me think and I like you, Laura. I read into it that this person wasn't necessarily that excited about her alternative job, but I also am reading into it. You know, she's been in quote unquote academia, um, and I think she really needs to explore why why she has passion for academia. Like why you know she's worried about not being able to get back into it, which. I actually think is questionable and I'll get to that. But what does she love about it? If she loves the research, if she loves sort of the environment, it may be worth those sacrifices. If she doesn't know that taking a more community oriented job may provide her with a better lifestyle, more money, even if she has to create a job that's 0.8, she may find that a 0.8 job at a non-academic setting pays just as much as a full-time academic job with far better sort of balance of work duties. So I think she really needs to explore why she feels compelled to stay on that academic track and if it's really something that's even worth worrying about. The other thing I think is that in terms of the sleep deprivation, you know, there are a lot of institutions where it's starting to be a little bit less common for a lot of at-home overnight shifts. There are more in-house positions. there's more shift work. Um, you may want to look and see if even within the realm of academia, there are other places where you could stay on that track, but perhaps just have a different structure of time now that you've identified that it's actually not the number of hours you're working that's terrible, but it's the expectation of this 24-7 availability and of course the sleep deprivation, which some people are definitely better at than others, but I, like you, find it makes me completely miserable and I have found ways to try to minimize it and I've been very happy with that that, the less I do of it. And then finally, I guess I would look to see does that door really close when you leave somewhere else temporarily? I mean, if you're exploring another opportunity, are you sure that you wouldn't be able to just jump back right in if they value your contributions or perhaps if you could continue to be active in, in any research that you do? I can't imagine that a CV that contains a couple years of perhaps a lighter workload in a community setting would make you you know, barred from future academic work forever. It's true, you may have to kind of work your way back up, but if you're in the right place, right time, or if you're kind of willing to be a clinical workhorse for a while, I'm sure you could step back in. So I think the only way to really know what's going to work is is to give something else a try. So that would be my vote.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, academia is always funny. I mean, I don't know about academic medicine, but I know that academia in general, once you're off the tenor, tenure track, you're basically never back on. So that's that's it's, the problem.
3: It is different. It, it is, is absolutely different? Okay. different in medicine. I mean, I can even think of when I was a resident at Duke, a very academic place, our pediatric program director, he didn't stay with the program that long, but he was in academia, left to do private practice for like a decade, became an excellent clinician. He was a pulmonologist. And then Used his leadership skills. I guess they needed someone. He was the right fit and came right back to Duke. And there are also clinical positions in academic centers because someone has to see all the patients. So it's very different than a, a college where you know everyone has their their. La- I guess it would be equivalent to coming back as more of an instructor. Like someone has to teach these you know students. And if you're willing to have that more primarily clinical role, I'm not sure that your background necessarily matters. Now, if your job, if your goal is to be chief of an academic division and like, or have like 80% protected research time, you're right. That would be a track that would be very hard to jump back onto. But just being a part, it doesn't sound like she has a job like that now, so... Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, the thing with with the call schedule, of course, is is that when you have a three year old and a one year old and basically she's on call every night in the sense that she's dealing with the call of her own children um, and and then the call of, of her patients on the other. And I think that's where it's it stacks up is this this feeling of being constantly. Um, on call for all sorts of people, both professionally and and personally. And um, if you were did not have small children, it might be totally fine to have the every third night and every third weekend because you'd be able to catch up on it for sure. Like you'd know you could. Whereas I think when you don't know you can, um, that, that makes it even just like that much more psychologically difficult. I mean, I know you posted about that a lot, Sarah. When oh my gosh. Being- One of the
3: hardest times of my life was when I would be taking my We take call a week at a time and I work even fewer hours than you total probably over that one week period, but I'm on call for 168 hours. So it's an interesting ratio, but you know, the baby would be waking me up and then when the baby wasn't waking me up, it felt like the pager was waking me up and it's like, that is misery. I I don't think anybody can have a, a good experience during that time.
2: Yeah. So that's really hard, of course. I think it was good that she saw that the work tasks consume 45 of the 81 hours, because then you can start at least ask the question of like, well, what can I prioritize during the other times? I mean, obviously sleep, you want to prioritize during the overnight shifts, Um, but maybe you could give yourself permission to read or something like uh, give yourself a lot of reading time or something as another thing you could do. Um, But what might make some of that other 36 hours uh, feel not horrible? right? Is, is there anything you could do during that time? I mean, as for the question of should I take this other job? I mean, I think when you are facing extreme burnout, you can kind of grasp at anything. And it sounds like from this letter, she's not excited about this other job. It's just that it's not her current job. And so she's like, I got to do something. But this is probably not the only other job in the world that would sure. make use of, of your skills. Um, that if you are seriously considering leaving your institution, then why not broaden it up, say, well, let me look at all the other places that might employ a physician of my specialty around here. Let me look at everything I might do. Let me talk to lots of people say that because there's probably something else that pays well, may have less call or is um, a different set of call, like Sarah was saying, you know, where you you actually get a 12 hour shift and then you're off or whatever it is. But if you're going to broaden your surgery or maybe even your family might be willing to move. I mean, I don't know what this lady's partner does, but maybe um, he or she would be willing to move elsewhere you know, then then you can look all over the place. Uh, and, and so once you know that you are seriously looking for something else than what you are currently doing, then you don't have to take the first thing that you see. Because if you're not excited about it, like you still have to do the stuff of your job. Like you can't only live on lifestyle. Uh, and, and what that I think would be one of the points we, we see a lot in, in Best of Both Worlds is people are unhappy about the lifestyle. And so then they get to something else that they may have a good lifestyle, but they don't like the stuff of the job like I think you still have to like the stuff of the job and if there was a reason you chose this specialty like you really like what it is or you like the the maybe it's the academic medicine as as Sarah was was mentioning that you know ask whether that's the part you really like you want to make sure you're still doing that because you still have to like your job whether you're doing it for 30 hours or 45 as part of an 81 hour you know call schedule uh, so so I think that that's a separate question and you need to look at both and and if you are seriously considering leaving your institution but you're not you know thrilled about this other Job opportunity, maybe broaden the search and see what what you can come up with. But I know that uh, call never Sarah's favorite. Um, so uh, I guess anyone reading her her blog has. Uh, I think my generation
3: dislikes call more than previous generations did, and I'm interested to see how interested to see how things devolve. You know, I'm now a program director at a residency program, a residency program which has no call. Um, They have shift work. They have overnights. There's no call. Uh, For us, it's a recruitment tool because we're a relatively new program. But I have actually heard at a number of meetings that a lot of programs are headed in that way, which is crazy because I didn't train that long ago and I had 30 hour shifts galore and they were were misery. So now that we're training our residents to see that as crazy, I'm not sure they're going to want to take attending jobs where those exist. And I think the market may change. I don't think people are necessarily going to work less, although I do think There may be more opportunity for kind of 0.7, 0.8 kind of positions that are really maybe more like 45 hours and that honestly pay pretty well because when you take off 20% of a physician's salary, it often is still a reasonable number. But yeah, I do think this is going to be an area of a lot of change in the next decade or
2: so. So stay tuned for that. Well, this has been Best of Both Worlds. We've mostly been talking about camp, but also some here about call schedules and, and lifestyle related to that. Tune in next week for more on making work and life fit together.
3: Thanks for listening. You can find me, Sarah, at theshoebox.com or at the underscore shoebox on Instagram.
2: And you can find me, Laura, at lauravandercam.com. This has been the Best of Both Worlds podcast. Please join us next time for more on making work and life work together.